So this particular morning, the sermon is something we create together. I have any, this is the question box sermon, uh, known by name, many titles, but generally the question box sermon. And I have any number of questions from folks that were gathered live from the congregation. I have a few that were shared with me ahead of time. And any of the questions shared that I don't address, and probably even some that I try to, because some of them are whoppers, will inform some of our conversations in worship and as a congregation as a whole, in fact. So just in case you're wondering, why is Reverend Jennifer looking to us for questions? I think the Mariah Mitchell story is a good example of like why we have to look each other at each other for questions. Like, doesn't, doesn't the minister have plenty of things to talk about? Is this her way of getting out of writing a sermon? Well, to answer the second question, uh, yes. I mean, do we have plenty of things to talk about? Absolutely. We've only just begun to talk about the, and explore the larger message of progressive religion in this time and place. And even I, in my um, a couple of decades plus experience of ministry, I still feel like I've only just begun to talk about and explore all that we can. So to answer the third question, is this her way to get out of writing a sermon? So in case you were wondering, to show up and answer in any kind of meaningful way the questions that you may offer with almost no time to think of them, in no way lets me off the hook. Just, it's okay. And that's okay, I'm volunteering. And add to that that we do this in the context of worship, and that we need to remain so. This is a worship setting. This is not a, def, you know, a discussion group in our uh, conference room, for example. And so just let me offer, this is both fun and serious business. And congregations and universalist ministers, we want the questions from each other. Our congregations choose who will preach and who will lead worship. And once chosen, the minister may say what they want to say as they see it. This is part of our free pulpit tradition. And at the same time, part of the trust is placed in the preaching minister is that we will speak to the lives of the congregation and of the larger faith of which we are a part. And to do so, to be entrusted in this way without ever asking, what are your concerns? What are your big questions? Keeps the minister from a wonderful source of inspiration and information. And asking your, for your questions is part of how I feel like I live into the covenant that we have together, the promises that we've made and, and are keeping in the course of our ministry together. So I will answer as many as I can in the usual sermon time. I have my phone here to help me out. It may go a little bit over. That's okay. And then the remainder will help inform our time together. And so let's begin. I want to begin with one. I have a few that were sent ahead. I will get to those second, but I'm going to get to the first one first, which is, and thank you also for writing legibly, really makes a difference. How many different stoles do you have? 
How many different stoles do you have? Now, in case you're wondering, a stole is this, the what I have around my neck and across my front. And the stoles in our Unitarian Universalist tradition can truly take any form, any decoration, any design, and so on. They're meant to express something meaningful, something that uh, is kind of capturing a, a moment, something specific, but also usually something larger as well. In this case, for me, the stole kind of goes back uh, in our, has its roots in our Christian heritage, where Jesus had a towel around his neck as he washed the feet of the disciples. So this is part of the function of the stole is that we, it is to put it on is to say, I am in a moment of service with my community. So that's one thing. And the stole that I have today is one that was uh, commissioned by the installation committee for the, from this congregation and was given to me as a gift to mark the beginning, the formal beginning of my ministry with this congregation. Uh, back in March 2021, we had been all online, oh my goodness, and we did a little hybrid way to do the installation service up here. Um, and I think maybe still had scaffolding to get these, <laughs> I think we still had scaffolding to get, the, to get the screens in at that time. We were still, we were working on it, we were working progress. And this stole represents, is a lovely interpretation of one of our stained glass windows here in the sanctuary. And so I appreciate that we were able to find an artist to be able to do that. And so it's a wonderful way of kind of visual, visual connection. Um, and I wear it in service as part of that connection. All right. Oh, and how many do I have? There we go. That was the actual question. I have maybe a dozen all kinds of places they came from, all kinds of colors, designs, seasonal, not seasonal, lots of different ones. And it's meaningful to be able to kind of add to the message of the service by picking out, um, composing the experience, if you will, including the stole. There's my little theater background as well. Okay, let's see. let me get to the ones that were sent ahead first. Uh, from Lindy Peterson, what is your opinion on the proposed changes to Article 2. I will explain that a little bit to our newcomers. In particular, she asks, if you would, I wonder if you think there is an easy way for folks to stop talk about the new statement of values in the way, in the way before we can talk, we would talk about the seven principles. All right. So when we refer to Article 2 uh, conversations right now in our association, this is our larger association, the Unitarian Universalist Association, is doing uh, a big revision and exploration of language for how do we express what's important to us as a larger tradition. And, and because we are, because uh, this is how we work in some ways, we don't put it in like in a Bible, we put it in bylaws. We put it in bylaws. So we start the beginnings of our bylaws as an association, the denomination, is begins with expressing what matters most. How do we gather with each other, our expression of freedom, of exploration, and what are our core values? Now, one of the ways we've been doing that for the past, gosh, nearly 40 years at this point 
is with the seven principles and six sources in Unitarian Universalism. If you have a gray hymnal in front of you, it's, it's at the front of the book if you're not familiar with them. And they begin with things such as, we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another, encouragement to spiritual growth, and so on. And they have been incredibly meaningful for folks uh, to be kind of a way to frame uh, and describe our Unitarian Universalism. And some of them are truly theological statements. One, that we affirm the inherent worth of every person uh, and affirm that as opposed to saying that uh, in other theologies, saying that all people uh, are, are, need to be saved because they're wretched and grungy and so on and so forth, that their souls are not okay. We affirm the saying, we start with saying love and that each of us has worth. The, um, and we also affirm spiritual growth, which means that we are open to constant revelation. Yep, I'll take that. Thank you, Rachel. We affirm that revelation is not sealed, that there is truth to be found in all places, not just one particular set of information or scripture. That's a theological statement as well. And also, the seventh principle, the inherent worth, uh, sorry, the, we are part of the interdependent web of existence of which we are a part. We are part of a global, interconnected, powerful existence. So inherent worth, open to growth, web of existence in which everything is part and parcel. So we've been working with that kind of frame for nearly 40 years. But what's also true is that we don't get attached to any one way of talking about what we value most. Some gets really familiar and makes it a little easier um, and can be inspirational and we bounce off it. But in Unitarian Universalism, we don't have one, one way of articulating what we believe. Uh, in fact, we benefit, we know we benefit from the multitude. So we've been charged with exploring what shall we, how do we express ourselves now? So this is the Article 2 work, is to say, let's go look at these values. How do we express ourselves now, today? Because we've learned so much more about anti-racism. We've learned so much more about systemic oppression. And we've learned so much more about valuing our Earth. What's today? Um, and so we'll learn about more of that in the course of things. But one of the ways we're exploring that language is through our themes in the course of this, uh, the monthly themes. So if you turn to uh, this September newsletter, you will see the themes laid out, and that will give you a sense of those values, and then we'll keep working on them in the course. Where we are now with this process is that our delegates, representatives of all of our congregations, voted in June to say to go with the initial draft of language or the draft of language that was created at that time, and we're going to spend this year exploring that language. And then we come to next June, our annual meeting for the General Assembly in our next June, and we'll say whether or not uh, we want to affirm that language and formally add it to the bylaws. So this is a chance to explore. We'll have some more. We've had some conversations already. We'll have some more going in. Um, and if you have more questions, by all means, please ask. Let's see. Let me take a breath, a drink. This is a short question. 
Okay, the question is short, but the answer is there's a lot. Okay. One is, why should I come to church if I can just Zoom the service? Why should I come to church if I can just Zoom the, church, the service? A question for our time. Question for our time, is it not? But you know what? I'm not just going to be the only one who answers this one, because I got this ahead of time. I could think about this. Let me offer to the congregation who is sitting with us right now in person. Why come to church in person, George? The interpersonal socialization. Boy, haven't we learned how valuable that is as a whole society? Yeah. Yep. Yes, Mary. Fellowship with each other to uplift and support each other. Mm-hmm. Great. Yes, Dave. Coffee hour. Can I tell you how much I love that when we started to come back, have coffee hour at least outside in person uh, during, uh, you know, during the heart of the pandemic here, the beginning of it, the most intense part, and that how much people were passionate for coffee hour, I just, oh my gosh, you all. I'm like, yeah, there we go. That's, that, said, said, that was a sermon by itself, frankly. Um, and we're willing to kind of shiver under canopies and trees to kind of say, we're going to be here together. It's so good. Okay. Any other answers? Yes, Kathy. to share what's going on, to help one another, and what's new and how to be involved. Okay, great, thank you. So, those in fact, oh, did we have one more? I didn't see, oh, yes, Amanda, go ahead. It is easier for our children to connect everything that's about our church in person versus over Zoom, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I have an appreciation because that first year of being, being, me being with this congregation, 2020, 2021, all those services, we recorded them ahead of time. If, if you weren't here, we recorded them ahead of time and then broadcast them on, on Zoom, but also YouTube and Facebook and so on. So for the first time in mostly my adult life, I didn't have to go to church on Sunday morning for the better part of a year. I can see the appeal. Like, oh, look, it's Sunday morning. I get to hang, get up, hang out, have breakfast with my family. I'm turning on the worship service. I joined the Zoom conversation for coffee hour. And it was great and valuable and precious. And so, like, I, I mean, I get it. And I have to say, all of those pieces that we were just naming just now are all why we understand how, how precious it is, one, to be able to get together and the value of getting together. I think the experience of worship is different when we're all, when so many of us are in the same room, even when a number of people are also online. It feels different than when I'm at the pulpit and the sanctuary is empty. And I'll also just offer... Along those lines, I am so grateful. Somebody asked recently, what's my, you know, what, how, how important it is for, for, to me, or what's the, 
yeah, what's the value of it to have people in the pews? Uh, and more people, you know, we want to have like more, you know, as many as possible people, you know, present in the pews. And I just say, my baseline since pandemic is now shifted. I am happy for anybody to be in here. I want to be just around the people because it is so important. Because preaching to a blue dot of a camera is not a congregation. You are much bigger than blue dots, I will say. And I think this is why we create beautiful sacred space, because we know people who came before know the value of that as well. But I say all this also recognizing that we, somebody, one of the other questions here is how has worship changed, or recognizing how much worship has changed since the pandemic. And one of those is that we know how important it is to be accessible. And that for some of us, Attending service online is the only way we're going to be able to get to it. And that, that means that we need to be as, offer as many options as we can within our resources and reason. And we have a lot, actually. We need to be as accessible as we can in order for people to be part of the congregation. The number of people, we've been saying this with the board in different ways, we have about 300 members of the congregation right now. 301, I think, was the number. 301, Regina nods. <laughs> and we also have 70, 80 people who are friends of the congregation, regular attendees or regular contributors. And we have any number of children and youth. We have parents and families who are also connected to the congregation. So. Think about how part of what we're doing as a collective body is holding the scope and size of over 400 people. And that's part of helps when we gather together in person. It helps, I know it helps me and it can help all of us kind of realize, ah, there's a lot more here than I can see. And we all, we have a wide, wide circle to kind of all hold together. So when we have people in person, it's a great way to kind of refresh that and get the diversity of perspective and experience that helps us connect with the larger group. There's much more I could say about that, but I'm going to stop there. All right. Let's see where we are. All right. So here's one. Uh, here's one that is a big question. What do you think happens to us when we die? What do you think happens to us when we die, and how do we live not really knowing? How do we live not really knowing? Okay. And because, the question goes on to say, I'm deconstructing my Christian faith, and it's the first time experiencing a death recently. It's the first time I don't have the comfort of thinking they're in a better place now. We'll see them again someday. I don't want to continue to believe this just because it makes me feel better. Yeah. Okay. 
I'll offer that in the, gosh, 20 years plus, I've been offering the question box service in a range of congregations all over the country. Nearly every one of those services has included this question or one very similar to it because it's one of our deepest questions. Now, if we were in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I would say, well, where, where do you think? You know, where are you coming from? And usually that would lead to somebody unpacking a little bit of their religious history and then saying, here's where I seem to be right now. And it's okay if it's a hot mess because we all are, and that's okay. In Unitarian Universalism, part of what we understand is that we don't know. We are deep and profound questioners, and we know we don't have the answers. There's only, in terms of what happens after we die, we can ponder, and we can, in many ways, come up with some answers. It's like, you know what, this I can live with. This seems to make sense. And in Unitarian Universalism, it goes all the way from uh, I am right with Jesus, and I am saved, and I am in his embrace when I die, all the way to, I mean, it's kind of really a 3D sphere. It's not really an either or, but all the way to nothing happens. When I die, I, I blink out of existence. And that's it. And my body, hopefully I've made arrangements to have it go back into the earth in the least problematic way possible. Or some folks go with reincarnation. Or some folks uh, kind of feel that maybe there's got to be some time of wondering before I am connected again with the holy. We have the full span of those theologies in any given congregation. And what we also talk about in Unitarian Universalism is that we definitely don't, here's what we don't do. We don't say that you are damned to hell. We don't believe in a God that would do that to, and a loving God that would do that to the world. Why? That would impose an, inf an infinite punishment on finite mortal creatures. Ugh, no. We believe in a love. And whether you believe that's a love from God or the power of love that we know we experience as human beings, as we sang in last week's hymn, we rest in this love. From many places, from many sources. So we know we don't go burn in eternal hell. That's what we don't do. How do we live with all the unknowing? We live because we work with what we do know. 
we work with knowing that we have this life in front of us. We have this one. And there is so much that we can do and be in this one. So let's see what we can accomplish and what we, how we can learn and grow right here and right now. We know we have this. I will also offer in our, in our Unitarian Universalism, if we're going to believe that we are part of an inter interdependent web of existence of which we are a part, that being a part means in all the states that we can be. Where we came from is part of that state. Where we are now is part of that state. And where we will go when our bodies die is another part of that state. We are profoundly part of everything. That I will offer as well. And I take comfort in that. I like the idea that somehow my grandmother and my great-grandmother or so on are kind of present and with me, even though they've long since left this earth, if you will. And so I try to live up to what I know they believed in and what they wanted for me. And that's a lot. That's partially where I get the comfort. And as you can imagine, there's no one sermon going to cover that one either. We have a lot of different conversations. Let me see if we can do. So we can do one more. So I'm going to close with one last question on, on religious language, if you will. And like I said, there's more things that I can possibly cover in this moment. If it is not required that Unitarian Universalists believe in a God figure, why does a divine figure keep coming up in conversation? If it is not required that Unitarian Universalists believe in a God figure, why does divine figure keeps coming up in conversation? So what I'll offer is that, as I mentioned kind of earlier, that as seekers of truth, and we take a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, that we believe that truth can be found nearly everywhere. The truth is found in many places, from many sources. And we don't have a requirement for a particular understanding of God or the holy or the divine or so on. We have a very big tent theologically, which in case you were wondering, makes it very interesting to preach. Big tent. What kind of message will serve so many people? What I love 
in part about Unitarian Universalism is that we get to look at practically the full range of religious language, of poetry, of science and nature, of world religions, and so much more. We have access to the broad scale of human discovery as we consider our religious lives, as we consider our personal lives in the congregation. And so there's sometimes something about the word God or the holy or the sacred or the divine or the Buddha or so much more that can express something a little bit differently than any other set of words can express. And, well, okay, Unitarian Versus, we love a good word. We love maybe two words. In fact, we love 10 words. If we can have one, we like 10 at a time. I mean, we love the words. We do. And so, to me, that is part of the play. Part of how exploration works is to be, I'm going to try this on and see how this feels for a while. And I'll offer, and to do so in a way that is thoughtful and responsible. Um, it's not simply kind of a salad bar where you're like, oh, here's all the really tasty, pretty things. I'm going to take just the ones that I like the most that are my favorite foods. I mean, that's a plate, but every religious language has its source and culture and context and so on. And part of our work is to work with those questions as well as we look at systemic oppression and anti-racism and so on. So we're going to hear lots of different kinds of language from each other, and you're going to hear lots of different kinds of language from me, because that's part of our practice. And sometimes that captures things in a way that's a little bit different than any other way. And what's also true is that for some of us who have some real challenging religious history, or her truly said, you know, divine is not my scene. God is not me. I don't get religious language at all. Yeah, and some of us are going to have a real challenge with that. And I want to invite us each into curiosity and wondering as well. The part of the purpose of different parts of the service, for example, are different ways of entering in and exploring and being in contact and connection. So not every part is going to magically work for every person, but there hopefully is something that speaks to and lets you kind of ponder and feeds you for the week to come. So in our religious, in our exploration of language, and also, so here's the, here's the thing, here's the thing. Religious language does not have to be the purview of any one set of theology either. We have some religious traditions out in our country especially who have given religion a bad name. Can I get a, you know, amen? <laughs> right? You have so much in this moment we're having a religion, when we're having a social conversation about 
how, what is the role and place of our religious institutions? It is in part because you have some religious traditions who are being ugly and actively hating and hurting so many people of our society. And they do it with religious justification and fooey on them. I'm going to use not that language, you know. There's other language I could use. Mm. And we don't have to let them bogart the language. We can claim it for ourselves and explore it for ourselves and then decide not always, we don't have to use all the language all the time, right? But we don't get to let other people determine our language either. So that I will close on.